Dorothea Rathburn was born in 1932 in Montreal. She attended Black Mountain College, where she studied under mathematician Max Dane, whose tutelage deeply influenced her art practice. In New York City, Rockburn worked with Judson Dance Theater and participated in Carolee Schneemann's Meet Joy, among other performances. In the 1960s, Rockburn exhibited paintings made with industrial materials and created drawings from crude oil and graphite applied to paper and chipboard. Her visual equations, based on set theory, were first exhibited in New York in 1970. Rockburn's later paintings draw on ancient systems of proportion and astronomical phenomena. She's had solo exhibitions at the Museum of Modern Art in New York and a major retrospective at the Parish Art Museum. Dorothea Rockburn, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you. I was interested in how you came to art. You grew up in Montreal, and you had an early fascination with, with math and astronomy. Mm -hmm. Well, like all children, you know, I, I drew and painted, you know. And um, I could also read when I was three. And uh, so by the time I was five, you know, it was like, do you want to read or do you want to paint and draw? And I found I got more from painting and drawing, although I'm a big reader and always have been, but yeah, I found that I, I got something from painting and drawing I couldn't get anywhere else, and that's never left me. Right. And it's like something I have to do. <laughs> And was that? And you also spoken about having, um, well, lay, later on, uh, Max Stein and Dane, Dane Max sorry, Dane, Dane yeah. um, being um, in, uh, inspirational to your process. Absolutely. But there are also early math teachers that unlock something for you. No, uh, <laughs> the opposite. <laughs> um, I went to an English girls' school, and we learned to write. We had literally no mathematics at all. <laughs> Smattering of algebra, you know, that's about it. That was about it. And so, and the, and the teachers, you know, didn't, weren't interested and they didn't want to teach it and they didn't know what they were teaching and the usual stuff. And, and I um, was good at it, so I could just kind of slip through without being noticed and not have to work very hard at it and, you know, get good, get good grades. Um, but something that, I, that did happen is that when the teacher started to teach algebra, she stood behind my desk and I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> she was watching me and I thought, uh-oh. And instead of that, she said, don't, somebody, don't tell me somebody in this class gets it. And that was the first kind of inkling I had that math was easy for me. Mm. And then, when I was 13, I had an 18-year-old boyfriend who was going to college. <laughs> and you did I, his homework for him. <laughs> I, no, I didn't do the homework. I, but what I did was I played hooky from the school I was going to, and I went to college with him. I sat in on his classes at McGill, and he was a math major. Right. And and I loved it. 
and at the end of, um, I don't know, about the third or fourth class, uh, and he was, he was very smart, uh, but he was not good at it. And he, did, he just didn't, you know, it's, it's something about being able to think abstractly. Right. And uh, so at the end of about the third class, I found myself explaining to him the class. I mean, I'm 13 years old. I've never had any mathematics, you know. But I, and I didn't even think about it, you know. But I thought, you know, I thought, oh, that's weird. <laughs> you, know? Uh, you know, the tape moves on. I, I, I go to Black Mountain at 18. Mm. I had absolutely no interest in studying math. And Max, you know, pulled me in. There were very many teachers at Black Mountain and very few students, so the teachers kind of, uh, you know, wanted you to take their class, and they, and the students, of course, were extraordinary. Mm -hmm. But they were weird, you know, they were all dyslexic and <laughs> all that kind of stuff. And um, Max asked me to take his class, and I said, I don't have uh, the prep for that, that kind of work, because there were people there who came from Europe just to study with him. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, well, you know, come and try it. So I went to the class, and I, I couldn't, you know, be immediately smart mathematicians. I was an artist, you know. And um, I said, I, I can't take the class because I just don't understand anything that's going on or how to do it. And he said, I'll teach you math uh, for artists. He said, I'll teach you. And he used to... Before I was there, I used to give geometry. He wrote a book, Geometry for Artists, and he, and he was a very uh, delicious mind mm. and a very lovely person. He was a Jew who had uh, been, um, you know, persecuted in Germany, and he was actually part of something called the Frankfurt Group, which was a pretty uh, Wizzy group, and they were the people who began the early work in topology, uh, which is the study of con continuous spaces. And if you're getting to the moon, that's all topology math, etc. And so he began to take me on these walks, which I've talked about, so they're kind of, you know, a known thing every morning. And he explained probability theory to me by, you know, the, there's this amount of leaves on the top of a tree, there's, and you go through probability theory, there's, you can figure out the root system, and, and, and you know, just things like that, Fibonacci progressions and all of those things. And so we did that for six months, and he gave me a lot of book na books. Now, who knows why? I am a worker. Mm. <laughs> you know, I still work long hours at the same time, I'm a worker. So they gave me the books, you know, anybody like does something like that, I just do it automatically. So I read the books and with his help, I learned algebra and I learned calculus with these books. And we sort of had a, besides these walks, we kind of had a, a tutorial, a long tutorial once a week, it was maybe three hours or something like that. And at the end of about, three months or four months, he said, try the class again. And so I took the class and no problems. Mm. It was kind of, you know, because as I say, I'm a worker. Yes. <laughs> so I 
sat and did the work, and I'm not a sleeper, I don't sleep very much, I never have. And you know, different people need different amounts of sleep, and I've never needed much, so. You know, I would stay up all night and do these math books, and I just adored it because it was like it was like watching the universe unfold. And it's interesting, of course, he gave you these books, but it's interesting how those walks also illustrated. If you feel without the walks, the abstraction. The walks were amazing. We walked up every morning at eight o'clock to there's a waterfall on campus at Black Mountain, and. We walked to this waterfall, and you know, he explained water to me. <laughs> you know, not just flat, really. He explained how things worked. And I've, you know, when I was a little kid, I used to take alarm clocks apart and put them back together and things like that. I don't know. Ever since the chip entered the universe, I don't know electronics now. But when I was a kid, I, you know, when I was even living in New York uh, on Chamber Street with my daughter, we had a TV set which broke down uh, periodically, and I would take out all the tubes and go test them at the local store and replace them. You know, I, could, I just was interested in how, how things tick always, you know, in nature and in mechanics and so on. So math just kind of was kind of an, a natural for me, the way Max taught it, because what he was really teaching was astronomy. And you can see that sense of wonder everywhere in your early artworks to the ones that you just shared with us today, uh, with the beautiful um, copper over paper and all these textures, and they're just a wonderful meditation. I think an expression you've used was uh, on the nature of nature. Yes. But it's, it's wonderful what a good teacher can do well, you know, I, I teach here. Yes. I mean, I teach in my studio. It's mm -hmm. part of my work. Yeah. And I have some pretty famous graduates. Right. <laughs> and I've been doing that most of my life. And mm -hmm. now, and Julia is the latest victim. Mm -hmm. And I have, there are other people. I have a, a really brilliant guy that comes in on Fridays. He's a techie. Mm -hmm. and he keeps all the machines together, but he's also a very good sculptor. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, there's a uh, somebody that comes in radically. We never know when he's going to come in. Um, he, who um, is doing the archives? But you know, it's like there's kind of. I mean, I just think I'm a born teacher somehow. Right. And the best set in the max sense, you know, mm -hmm. the best sense. I, I have a way of showing people who they are, what they can be, and, you know, mm -hmm. and it's, it's my delight. So, yeah, so it goes hand in hand with your making, and you understand. And yes. I think there's something about teaching that you understand your own work better, too, it, through the, well, how they I, reaction. It, it, it's yeah. not so much that. It's more um, kind of adventurous. The fact is that we always came to New York as a young artist to be, find out how to be an artist, but now, since the world has changed, there are no local bars or things, places you can go to meet people. There aren't. So, oh, that's true, the community, so we were just talking about it. If you stay three years here, which mm -hmm. is what I ask, um, you'll meet anybody and everybody that you want to know. Oh, it's, I don't, like an under-master painter, an apprenticeship? What do you call it then? I don't call it anything. I just, yeah. you know, people come to me, like mm -hmm. Julia came to me, you know, people come to me, Michael came to me. 
Mm-hmm. They Michael came because he saw Dia Beacon, mm-hmm. and he wanted to work with me. Mm-hmm. And I don't. I just explain when somebody wants to come to the studio that it's really a school, mm-hmm. and that there's. I will show them how to run a studio, and how to meet people, and how to do that aspect of it, and open up their lives. And they have to work like hell at their art mm. and share it with me and let me know what's going on and so on. So it's it's a school in the Greek sense. Yes. <laughs> you know? Well, it's like those those walks, those conversations. And I, I do a, think you learn It's a lot doing. like that. Yeah. It's a lot like that. I mean, Max taught me. Max taught me how to live. Mm. I want, you said that you, you were taught by him, but you were taught by a lot of other people. And to speak about that, that period was um, very special time in Black Mountain. And let's also speak about what was uh, unique about that school. But some of the, your colleagues, and I get you also um, um, assisted Rauschenberg later. But let's... Um, no, Rauschenberg, I met him two weeks after he got there. Yes. I just think later on, I guess, back in the city. But um, Franz Klein, Philip Gustin, I mean, it's a who's who of you know yeah. artists of that period. Yeah. Um, Vincente Torkov. Yeah, please, yes. Yeah. What did you, um, I mean, what was that like? That's, it's very exciting. Did you know that those were, they were, you were just young then, you know? Did you know yeah, that, that you I were... was young from French Canada, you yeah. know? <laughs> Coming from a French background, really, and, and also French country music, Canadian French country music, which was a lot of violin playing that sounded like Bach. classical concerts. And uh, I went to Black Mountain, and there was this place where everyone went to drink and eat called Peaks Tavern, and it was on the highway between Black Mountain and Ash, uh, between College of Black Mountain and the town of Black Mountain. And the first time I went, they had a jug band, and that meant a lot of people were playing different cut, were going into different kind of jugs, which gave different kind of notes. So that, so it was kind of like a symphony using jugs. It was, but it was country music. And these were old white guys, old white farmers. And another time I went, and they were doing, they were playing washboards, and somehow they played it with their washboards were rumpled metal, and they ran their fingers over them, and they got music out of it. And it was a whole country way of experiencing music. Uh, meanwhile, at Black Mountain, I, I studied music for four years with uh, uh, Mrs. Yalowitz, who was uh, my singing teacher. So I was doing all those exercises, and I knew what, how hard it is to make music, really. And There was this moment a few weeks after I was at Black Mountain when everybody was excited about going to Peaks because there was going to be a musician there that everybody but me knew about. And we all went, and the musician was Elvis Presley, young Elvis Presley, 19 years old. And his voice was stunning, absolutely stunning. And he sang, I remember what he sang, he sang Blue Moon. So poignant and beautiful. And afterward, 
he left. And all the old white musicians were pissed off. <laughs> and I thought it was because he was wiggling his hips or something. Not at all. That's not why they were why they were annoyed. They were annoyed because he was playing an electric guitar. And that was against the rules for them. They weren't around no, at all. It must have been you know, it must have been a very new thing. But I of course was green and didn't know anything about anything. <laughs> but did you did you feel the excitement of the, the artists that you would become? What was I that? I felt that excitement in Montreal. Oh yes. Montreal was very vibrant. Oh as well. Okay. I didn't very, know. very vibrant. It's there was not a lot of great painting going on, but there was a lot of great literature and theater and mm -hmm. and I had a rich life in Montreal, very rich. Right. And were you involved in dance then, or was that just later? I, I have a scoliosis in my upper yeah. back. Yes. And so my posture mm -hmm. has always needed work. But mm -hmm. in those days, there, there were no x-rays or anything. They didn't know what they didn't know there was something physically wrong. Or my mother wanted me to have my mother, growing up with my mother was a, really a, a chore. <laughs> and, uh, she wanted me to have good posture, so she sent me to ballet at four. And mm -hmm. so I studied ballet throughout all my early years and teen years. So when I went to Black Mountain, I naturally checked in with Merce Cunningham and Katie Litz. And it was natural for me to dance, although I never wanted to be a dancer. I was good at it. Yeah. yeah. But it helps and you see lines and all well, sorts of things. Also, I was an athlete, you know, mm -hmm. I swam and I skied competitively and, you know, just Canada. <laughs> it's, like, it's, not a, it's not catch potato America. <laughs> Every got up, everybody got up and moved, <laughs> you know. I just being, going to ballet class was just part of that. But it's something I was reminded of recently, uh, last Saturday, I went to see Sylvian Glover. Oh, I haven't seen him. Just incredible, mm -hmm. so amazing. You know, he's a tap dancer, mm -hmm. and you know, I came away from that, you know, both exhilarated and remembering that. Again, my mother had sent me to the Shirley Temple School of Tap Dancing when I was six years old. <laughs> so you know, it's so such fun to remember. It's so interesting. Does that? Does that inspire when you see other artists work? Do you want to hurry back to your studio and create yourself? No, it doesn't work that way for me, and it never has. I uh, not only did I study contemporary mathematics, but all my life I've been studying arcane mathematics, Babylonian, Egyptian, and so on. There's something about Understanding, I mean, Google it sometime. It's fun to read. And all that poisoning you got about math in school disappears. You see, like, people were just figuring out, you know, like one, two, three, four, and how it moved, how that moved into algebra and calcul calculus. Babylonian uh, mathematics is absolutely fascinating. But, you know, it's on Wikipedia. It's just easy to, to investigate. And there's something about this life I have, and I've had since I was a child, about studying the, 
creativity of the arcane. I've been studying Egypt since I was six. And that's, that's where I go every day. <laughs> you were talking about time and the, your experience of time. And you, you said you don't experience it as a, well, it's not linear. I don't know. How would you say? It's hard for me, for myself, to define what the past is. Mm. So when I was doing the, the work at DIA, I felt like I had thought about this work and formed it yesterday. Mm. But then, as I said, I have extensive diary notes on it. So it was easy to go back to 80, uh, 73 diaries and look at it and then share it with all the people that, that were working with me at DIA. And of course, you know, like they have only seen this in reproduction. They don't know what the work behind the work. And so once we were talking about, and we had to try, the big reason it took three years is that um, none of the materials exist. We had to substitute and test new materials to substitute for the old materials, nothing. You know, it's like Rauschenberg went, lost one of the Coke bottles from his work and he couldn't, he finally found one in a mountain in India or something, you know, like, you know, it's that, that kind of thing. I mean, the stuff that was so ordinary, paper that was so ordinary, we had to have special paper made and, you know, so that's what really, really took the time. But in terms of the time, the sequential time, I experienced very little difference between yesterday and today mm. in, in my work. Right. And I guess, you know, there's some actors, too, who might reprise a role and they can go mm -hmm. back into it, they sense memory. Exactly, it's quite like that. Mm -hmm. um, and that may be... Well, I think that we're talking about it. That's one of the, the, the gifts of the arts as well. Is for it, it keeps you young. It keeps you this sense of play or wonder. Um, but it is interesting. It is a feat. Maybe, you know, it's uh, not all artists can, can go back and create like that. It's something that you're disciplined and you keep notes. But um, I don't think it's easy for everyone. I'm not, we, I've never talked to anybody about it. And I guess if you have the same, not the same materials that you're using, but the same brushes, maybe. I don't know. Do you keep them this well, <laughs> that long? It's a, you can get the effects. It's, every time you try to do old work, it's a new game because, mm -hmm. you know, everything, is, the whole manufactured world has changed. Mm -hmm. There are no art supplies anymore, hardly. There's no uh, paper on walls. You know, I used to just nonchalantly roll paper from floor to ceiling. It doesn't exist anymore. Just for instance, you know, it's like what is important to people making money uh, for, in the consumer aspect of art is uh, digital. You know, they're all, you understand, they're all doing they're all slanting everything toward digital. And uh, I mean, I like digital, but that's not where I live. 
Yeah, this it can be a starter slip. They they are visceral. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're talking about meditations on, um, you know, astronomy. I don't meditate. No, I'm talking about like meditations on the natural world and astronomy and mathematics. I think it's very important for the materiality, not just to be. You, I Actually, know astronomy is a matter of understanding mathematical systems and how the universe more or less goes together to mm -hmm. the best of our our ability to comprehend it you know it's it's it, you know it's it's a complicated and yet simple concept i i went on sunday to the met to see the exhibition on the moon and it's so beautiful it's so touching uh, there are little daguerreotypes this size, and you know there's the silver moon in the middle of the, the black, you know, the black compound. I guess it is around them. I mean, it's just so beautiful. And there are copies of the Galileo drawings of the moon, which are even the copies are stunning. I've seen the originals in the Vatican. They're real, but you know, just to see people's curiosity about the moon and how they inquired about it and you know I mean I think like the trip to the moon is kind of not very interesting <laughs> to me anyway but all the surround sounds are extremely interesting uh, how we imagine it or no the, the mathematics yes and so we looked at some of your artworks Rhyme and geometry is R-I-E-M-A. Yes, I'm just thinking about your most recent works. Are those Meditations of the Moon as well? What are they then? I don't know. Sometimes work just happens and I don't know what it is. I don't know what those are, the blue collages. Mm -hmm. I was doing something else and I stopped doing that and I just did these and I don't know why or what they are. Mm -hmm. And then do you sometimes... But they're greatly interesting to me. They're like, to kind of a weird adventure of some sort. <laughs> and then do you sometimes share them with um, mathematical colleagues who may well find the answer? <laughs> I do. I have a very good friend at... Uh, you know, we are as close as I'd like to be because she's there and I'm here at Bowdoin. Oh, okay, yes. Jennifer Tabak, she's the head of the math mathematics department and yeah. that's where I got my doctorate from. Yeah. I have a doctorate. Yes, and you, yeah, so, and you also sometimes have lectured there. And, yes. Um, what are, yes, talk about the subjects of your lectures, what you like to impart in terms of your, the, the teaching that you do here. Well, you know, they're but, all on YouTube and it's kind yeah. of interesting to watch. I've been watching them myself recently, mm. or listening to them as they work. Um, the Bowdoin, the Bowdoin lecture is particularly interesting and significant, at least to me, because it describes the process of uh, absorbing mathematics and the changing it into a visual, a visual, the visual mm. aspect. And that's what it was a. It was a talk for mathematicians, and because it's it's a the degree I got is is uh, I received is 
not, uh, I mean, it's a real degree. I was examined for two days and things like yes. that. You know. mm -hmm. In mathematics and astronomy, I think of it as solutions and equations and problem sets and coming to like a, a deeper understanding. How does that translate to art and to your art? See, I don't really think of it that way. You know, I think about really the universe. You know, like, why am I here? Why are you here? What are we doing in this momentary situation, you know, which will all turn to dust in not too long a time, you know? And, you know, how, I mean, I'm particularly interested in the filming of the black hole, because you can never do that without topology, and topology is what. Max Stein taught. That's topological mathematics. Do you bring math and the and the and concepts and theory into your steering your students? I I try I try no. I you know like I just pointed Julia to uh, ancient Egyptian art copied from the internet. You know, I try to like actually dispel everybody's fear of math because everybody's had a very bad four years of high school and they were poisoned and the teachers didn't know what they were teaching and they didn't know how to teach it. They were like two pages ahead of the students in, their, in the book and so they were teaching by rote. Well, math has a rote aspect to it just like language, but that's just like language. That's not what you do. You talk French. You don't, <laughs> you know, do the study of it all the time, and that's the way math is. I mean, you, you learn, you learn how to do it, and you keep on learning how to do it because it changes all the time. But uh, you know, it, it's it's really uh, an open sesame to, you know, how does my brain work? <laughs> you know, what is my eyesight? You know, all all of, all of those things. What is my body? You know. I'm Lainey Sperry from a sophomore student studying history and anthropology at Barnard College. I'm an associate podcast producer and interviewer here at The Creative Process. Something that struck me while listening to Dorothea Rothburn's interview was how deeply she feels, thinks, and understands education as part of her creative process. From a transformative experience as a student under Max Dane to her dedication to teaching in her own studio, Rockburn's interest in how we learn and how we teach is ever-present in her work. I think that Rockburn's experiences and beliefs speak to valuing the process of learning and teaching more than the product. In my experience as a student, schools and educational systems often focus on pushing students to achieve a conventionally successful result, like a perfect grade, a good test score, a higher degree. While these are important to some particular goals, I believe more institutions need to approach education holistically, with an emphasis on meeting each student's learning style and developing their intellectual curiosity. By focusing on process, schools and teachers can help students access their own creativity, allowing them to thrive in all fields from mathematics to visual art. Rockburn is proof of this, showing that through her connection with a great teacher like Dane and teaching her own passionate students, 
creativity and intellectualism prosper when building mutual relationships of learning and trust, transforming education from means to an end to a beautifully holistic process. As an artist and painter myself, hearing about Rothburn's creative process makes me want to incorporate other academic disciplines into my creative work. I'm inspired to learn more about mathematics and astronomy, disciplines that have too often scared me, but I'm also inspired to use theory from subjects that I'm already knowledgeable and passionate about. As a history student, I can learn to read historical texts with artistic ideas and conceptions, and as an artist, I can learn to bring in historical philosophies of time, storytelling, and interaction. No discipline exists in isolation, and Rockburn's unabashed curiosity and braveness in tackling new ideas inspires me to bring together all of my questions and interests into creative pursuits. Rockburn demonstrates that all of life and learning can and should be part of one's own creative process. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with artist Dorothea Rockburn. Yes, when you teach its application as opposed to this... Uh, it's strange because you your paintings are somewhat abstract, but not they're, they're reflections on nature. Yeah. But yeah, when you teach, how does this... How do I use math in my everyday life, but not just the balance sheets, as you say, in the body? It's, it opens up the wonder. I think that that's lovely. Just, I just let me just show you what I'm talking about. I'll be back in a second. I'm not talking, you know, all of these drawings were, they were about the electromagnetic field and they were all done from equations and very fancy hard work. Yeah. But, you know, this is the kind of stuff I read and look at more than, although I look at fancy stuff too. But, you know, it just makes... It all very simple. And that's arcane mathematics. And it's it's interesting. Yeah, I'm gonna have a copy so that I won't like interrupt the you can the recording. Yes. Download it again. Um, it's interesting how that sets your mind to dreaming. I don't know. It's true, we have to introduce a sense of play. Yeah, and, but also, you know, the counting system is based on our 10 fingers, and you know, this, <laughs> the, you know, our body is all going section, of course. Yeah. And then, you know, it's, so it's, you know, it's pragmatic in a way. It's not um, even higher mathematics, especially higher mathematics. That's what Dane taught me. You know, it's like, you know, it, it's not, I was never interested in applied mathematics. I, I never wanted to be an engineer or anything like that. Mm. I just happen to have this talent for math. It's phenomenally easy for me, and I don't know why. And do you experience, as I know some people experience numbers as having personalities almost, or I don't. colors? I uh, don't. I think, of, I think of them as units in nature. Okay. Yeah, I know. Yeah, so they're the, the, not distinct to that. Because I, I thought, I would, I, I wonder about stuff it. out there which is garbage. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that's why this sort of sets it straight, you know, like 
five figures, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know, and disseminate that into five figures equals one, you know, unit and so on. Does digital now, are we losing something organic or do you feel like it's actually a pretty fantastic way to marry Absolutely. mathematics and the organic way? Absolutely. I... I cannot get over the glories of cell phones and the computer. I just, you know, I'm not good at either of them, but because of my generation, you know. But I just, I mean, I think it's just so amazing to bridge some gaps. Like, for instance, you never have to be lonely again. You know, you could listen to music on your cell phone as you walk. You know, there, you know, you you never have. And by lonely, lonely is about being bored. You never have to be bored. There's all of this stuff you could choose to do. It's like living on the edge of the ocean, you know, and looking at the ocean every day. I just think it's so. I'm I'm so happy I live in the age I live in. Is that a unique perspective? Do you think? Mm? Do you think that's a unique perspective? Of it is amongst my age group. Uh, everybody hates cell phones, and they think that people are uh, retarded because they sit in the on subway like this. And I think you know they're playing games and they're learning something, and they're having a lot of fun in the process. They're probably listening to music at the same time. And let's go, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's how I feel about it. It's nice. It's I mean there's 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 positive things and negative things about it. Yeah, because I've had heard. Depending on well, who I'm you speak about to. My generation is yeah. like, they think it's some kind of lack of communication when it's actually the opposite. I think it's more, I mean, we're lucky that we grew up, I think, knowing both periods, you know, pre-digital. And um, so it's nice to be, go, to be able to remember a time when we had, I mean, I'm just looking behind you at your collection of books. So you grew up with books. I think the issue for some people is that they only grew up digitally. And I don't think it matters. What is this morality about that? I mean, I, I'm a reader, I've always read, and I like, I like the adventure of books. And, you know, right now I'm reading, uh, Florence Nightingale's trip to Egypt. <laughs> How great could you get, you know? So that's great fun, but at the same time, obviously I have two 70-inch TVs, and I learn so much from TV. Yeah. Learn a lot from TV. There's, you know, I'm all over YouTube, so it's yeah. worth watching these lectures. Yes, exactly. um, uh, But, you know, there's... You know, it's so interesting that Bryce Martin is a good friend of mine, and it's so interesting to hear him being interviewed by Nick Sirota at the Tate, you know. I mean, I think, God, I have such the tool, tools I used to dream of. I used to, uh, even when I lived here, I'd spend mornings at the New York Public Library, which kind of a waste of time, you know? Mm -hmm. Researching, you know, now sure. I just have to go to the computer and look up Babylonian mathematics or whatever. I think, I think that that's, you know, you said learning. You said the word learning over and over again. And earlier you said, what is it about me feeling like I am a teacher? 
and that I need to teach and that I'm, I'm a natural born teacher. I wonder if that's the disconnection people see digital and cell phones and modern technology as a way that we remain disconnected. It breaks down communication. Whereas for you, it's about learning. You know, it's about, yeah. it's always about I mean, learning. this is a great tool. I just don't watch, you know, broadcast crap. You know, I just don't watch that. Yeah, I think that what, what I would say is, I think for people who are disciplined, it's great. And I think that it's an advantage, as I say, those of us who can remember being formed before digital technology because because we know that a lot of applications are designed with an addictive tendency so that's the th you know they're actually they are designed yeah. to addict mm -hmm. us so we're lucky those of us who are disciplined i feel it's unfortunate for others i don't who feel are like i'm disciplined i feel like i'm eager <laughs> no but you, you know what i mean you you also make your own entertainment so i just Absolutely. I'm, I'm always cautious about that, and I think of uh, some young people who, they're, we're talking about the math and, and the, the brain and all you these know, things. I have, a, I have a, like a real eagerness to live. Yes. And, you know, as I said, I'm going to the Hamptons this weekend and mm -hmm. kind of dreading it. What I prefer to do on a Sunday by subway is go to Coney Island, oh. have a hot dog and a beer, and walk on the boardwalk, and listen to the Cuban bands play. Uh. <laughs> it's really third world, and I took a friend with me, and she thought she was on Mars. Uh, uh. You know, but <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, I prefer it. I feel, I feel like I'm learning. <laughs> you know, I feel like I'm, you know, like it's food, in a way. And that brings back because we didn't open that discussion of your. Um, performance art and your work with dance to speak about some of your I mean you're talking about the music the Cuban this kind of excitement that gets you dreaming um please speak about some of those collaborations well uh, as I said I studied with Marissa Black Mountain mostly we didn't dance we threw coins but <laughs> nevertheless I studied two two summers with with Bruce, and I studied with Katie Litz, who was a phenomenal dancer. Mm -hmm. And since I had always done ballet when I came to New York, I, there were ads in the papers, like for $10, $10 you could take classes with balance sheet. Of course, he never showed up, but I signed up for the classes. And I, I took some, and I realized how boring ballet really is for me, you know, because I don't really like working at a bar and all that stuff. And classical ballet, but yeah, other forms. Uh, well, well, it's the discipline of it, of what you're doing, making your body do, and you, in the process of making your body do through discipline, you you lose your mind. Mm -hmm. it's, there's no, there's a disconnect. There's mm -hmm. got to be a disconnect, or you you never go through that pain. <laughs> you know? So there's there's a disconnect, but um, so like, you know, I was doing ballet and I thought, ish. <laughs> and then I saw these these ad for performances at Judson. Yeah. That's more theater like. Uh, no, they were they were dancers. Yeah. But that's it was theater. it was Trish Brown and um Sidney Childs and Yvonne Rayner and so on. They were they were doing radical performances mm -hmm. with radical thinking. And I went 
down to watch one of them and it was sort of boring and I thought, well, I'd rather perform than watch it. <laughs> and I can't remember who it was. And so I got in touch with somebody or other and, you know, managed to join Judson Dance Theater. And I was, my attitude was, I'm not a dancer. Mm -hmm. I mean, I didn't want to be a dancer. I mean, I had, I had the ability, but I didn't mm -hmm. want to be a dancer. Um, so I didn't care what I was in. I would be in anything anybody asked me to do. And it was, Judson was mostly non-trained dancers, and I'd had this you know, training for years and years. So they kind of grabbed me up. Mm -hmm. And I was in a lot of different things, but I, mostly I love their thinking because they were really interested in more in um, uh, Duncan's point of view, which is that movement should be natural, walking across the room should be a dance, mm -hmm. and so on. And, and they were really, I mean, Morris was really still coming out of, uh, oh God, what's her name? I can't remember her name at the moment. Uh, but, uh, and so he was, he was really still working out of classical dance via a different route, uh, Martha Graham. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, he, and in the early Morris technique was involved a lot of Martha Graham. But, um, what they were doing at, at Judson was so much more radical. I mean, they were just—they were—they just changed the game. I mean, it was just amazing, and it was such great fun to be in it. And it was—I uh, was at that point previous to going to Judson. I'd been doing uh, post-student work, which was. Um, kind of what was around, you know, like emulating other people. Uh, like, I did my share of de Koonings, as Chuck Close said he did more de Koonings than de Kooning. And, you know, it was kind of all that stuff was in the air, and I, and I knew the work wasn't what I would do. You know, I knew it was I mean, like trying to find out how to be an American in a way. <laughs> and, uh, so I stopped that entirely and, and I danced. Um, it was through dancing that I understood math, you know, the importance of mathematics to me and that, that, that is what I would do. And in terms of your visualization techniques, I mean, there's a sense, I'm thinking about, you're thinking about the natural world and water and the, you know, space. What, what, do you, what did you visualize when you were a dancer? What was that? How, what was that inner world? You kind of become something else, I, I think. Well, it reminded me a lot of skiing, you know. Mm. There was something that happened in skiing. We and my family went to the Lorraine every weekend mm. to ski. And we would, I, my bro, I had an older brother and sister. And after dinner, we would for a little while ski through new snow with torches. That was pretty exotic. And we went to a place that still exists called Grey Rocks Inn in Santa Gat. And uh, there was something about seeing the ski tracks that 
were very significant to me in terms of, I was going to art school and I was trying to learn to draw and those ski tracks were drawing like I wanted to make. I didn't want to do the drawing I was doing, formalist drawing. I wanted to do drawings like those ski tracks and somehow seed, you know, because they're kind of shades of white and gray and black mm -hmm. and somehow or other working at Judson really brought, and, and there's a lot, you ski because you know you move from your knees and all that stuff and your hips, there's a lot about this kind of stuff. Yeah, it's like mm -hmm. your body's making a line, your skis are making a, a line. Uh, Judson was the same, so I just kind of, it was just natural territory for me in a way. Well, and I didn't get to see those I don't, I don't, I don't know if I would know all the, the performances, but I mean, I, I had read about it, so I haven't. I, I'm sorry that I missed They're the assignment. But I mean, the, look at so Yvonne Rayner. Sometimes oh. she was fabulous. Um, and do you think and also? Trish Brown. There's a lot of Trish Brown on YouTube. Do you think that also, in terms of, I don't know, is it all uh, the choreographies memorized, or was more improvisational, or? Um, I think it was neither one. It wasn't really choreography as so much as a, as a, as a natural movement. How do you mm -hmm. walk across a room and make it interesting, mm -hmm. you know, and not do gymnastics? Mm -hmm. And is your your knowledge of drawing, or or at that time when you were doing that, your knowledge of drawing and your visual memory and math help you be a better dancer? I never connected anything. I knew that it wasn't that it was disconnected, it wasn't separate. It was all, you know, I did for years. I did, um, and even here, I used to have some drawing tables set up here where I did um, solid math, usually one night a week, sometimes more. And what caused you then, I don't know how long the period of time that you spent in the, at the Judson and the dance world, but what caused you then to, you know, concentrate your practice then back on the visual? Well, I remember the moment exactly. I uh, had been trying to figure out set theory in the studio, not for any reason, not to ever show, nothing to do with, you know, anything but needing to do it. And I was using rolls and papers. So there's work that's probably online that uh, Momo Owens called AC&D from group. I was trying to figure out how to do that. It was group theory, actually. And I didn't know what I was doing or how to do it. I just, I needed to see what was in my head before me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I needed to get it out of my head. And, um, I was dancing, and I was, you know, when you dance, you work on a grid, and you're always losing count, so you're always like adding and subtracting and things like that. And I, and I was, was kind of concentrating on how lost I was in the grid, and suddenly I saw the set theory work in my mind's eye, and I left the stage and I never returned. Mm. I just started to work in the studio. It's so interesting how 
the body and the movement can unlock things. Or just like the walking unlocked yeah. of visual ideas. Yeah. Sometimes you need that to get out of the yeah. static of our yeah. mind, right? Yeah. Um, and that's lovely. It brought you back. Um, but you do some kind of physical practice now. I mean, I mean not the same dance, but what is your... <laughs> I'm, do, I'm trying to do Tai Chi, and it's the only thing in my life I've never been able to do. <laughs> I tried it too. My friend tried I to I prefer Maybe dance. Maybe it's because I'm left-handed. The Tai Chi teacher, who's excellent and patient with me, uh, says, you know, because you, you do it to the left and right, does it make any difference? But I think it does. I'm left-handed. Yeah. I think... I find it somehow my body gets confused in the movements. It has oh, well, no memory or something like that. Well, could you? Oh, yeah. I wonder if that you could join the left-handed group and then <laughs> just reverse it. Mm. You know, most people, it's like, you know, every refrigerator is for right-handed people, yeah. you know, everything. It's just people don't realize how many left-handed people they are and that... You just don't think it's, you know, because the left side is the dominant side. And with, with me, you know, I have, you know, more quirks on the left side because I use it more and so on. Mm -hmm. Right. And how does that relate to your art, being left-handed? I mean, have you, I, I know that it's supposed to, op there's different pathways open in the brain for left, left and right-handed persons. Or how do you find it influences your, your perspective, the way you see the way your hand sees. I don't know, because I'm doing it left-handed. I don't yeah. know what a right-handed person would do. It is strange. I know another, I often thought about this because it was common, I think, I don't know if it was common in Canada, but I, I know people who've been, and it seems like a painful process, who've been forced to be right-handed. Well, they did that in my school. Yeah. Uh, and they'd come along, and when I was using my left hand, they'd crack me over the knuckles with a ruler cute, right? Uh, yeah. Six years old. Is it okay? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> and I started to stutter. Oh. And my mother took me to the pediatrician, which is, in those days, unusual. People didn't have pediatricians. Uh, she took me to the pediatrician, and he picked it up immediately, and he said, you wrote a note? No, it said, leave her alone. Oh. And so I was allowed. But Rauschenberg was changed. Okay. He's... Normally, you know, if he'd be left to himself, and he's very dyslexic, and dyslexia is left-handed. Right. They go hand in hand, you know. Yeah, um, it's interesting. And as we as we're learning, there there are different ways. There can be strengths associated with that. Absolutely. Um, and then speaking about dyslexia, you you aren't dyslexic. You I, you are okay. Mm -hmm. But you know, that's something. Um, but you know, dyslexia it's not is Latin for thought. can't learn. Yeah, I don't so like it's, that So it's a catch-all phrase. Nobody knows what a dyslexic person is. I mean, like I can do math, you know. Yeah, new pathways. Traditionally, dyslexic people can't do math. You know, I could read at three. Traditionally, dyslexic people hardly ever read. You know, there's all this, all this kind of baloney that's attached to it, which I think is... I don't think anybody's ever looked at it because it was considered, you know, it's called sinestra in Italian, you know, sinister. It's considered the devil's work to be left-handed. You know, it, it's permeated through the Catholic religion too. I think that they're now positive um, 
People are becoming more informed. I mean, I've, I know there's so many brilliant people who are or were left-handed, and, and you know that. Exactly. There's different ways of seeing. And I was fascinated, and you might have come across it, too. I mean, of course, you, you can read. I just heard that it's not, there's all these different levels. Some Rashi people read faster. couldn't read, never read a book. You yeah, said but, all the R's jumped out on the page. But listen, there's oh, this the technology. The person I've ever known in my life. Yeah, I probably also could memorize things brilliantly or something. You have to learn. No, you have could to. just think creatively in, a, yeah. in an astounding way. Everything was, <laughs> was visionary. We did take a plane ride and start talking about doing an artwork from the air. You know, I mean, it's just like, yeah. it was just amazing. Well, there is something that they say about having, like, you know, the space that's taken up by language. Then now it can be taken up with, you know, other. It's. Um, it's overflowing. Yeah, I don't think that's really true. But has you? Um, well, they they said that photographic memory is stronger in. I mean, I don't know because that's a kind of a myth or something. But in in children, it's uh, this tendency for um, eidetic memory is stronger before the acquisition of language. So we depend upon it for the memory recall. So we're we're. We have less space for the other stuff, I think. Yeah. But did you see, there's this technology, and I don't know if it's helpful for you, but you read very well, but for some dyslexics, that they just read too quickly so that they, they can't focus. It's like a vision, a vision or something. So that the letters put through a software application spaces the uh, letters, gives more space to the letters, the kerning, and then that allows certain types of dyslexics to just read in a natural way. And so it's it's fascinating. It's a it's not a yeah. It's just it's, it's, I thought that was interesting. You know, it's it a, interesting. You have children? I don't have. I have I have many students I work with, <laughs> but they're old children. So <laughs> just think like you know, children, children that are being born now are about to be are just you know you know I just oh, oh going to live such a different and less controlled and and wicked life. I mean, children are abused. And, oh. uh, they, you know, there's going to be less abuse. They're sticking them in these <laughs> little channels and so on. I think oh, you mean the education system yeah. is being... Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is one thing, and, I, and I'm glad that you brought it up. I would love to discuss with them what you feel are the importance of multi... Uh, disciplinary, interdisciplinary education, all this, because I do love to discuss the education models. It's changed, it's changing yeah. now. Yeah, and it's, I know. Yeah. Um, in what ways do you think, perhaps, I mean, because all schools are different, they're not all at the same level, but they're this kind of reform of education models. Wh in what ways do you feel we could do even more to? Um, well, for myself, perhaps because I'm dyslexic, but I always thought, no child ever learns anything by rote memory. Mm -hmm. I think that's the opposite of learning, mm -hmm. for instance. So I think with computers and cell phones, there's less, rote there's less of that. You know? mm -hmm. That's why people can't do math, because they're channeled into this rote uh, memory in high school. I mean, for it's my age, you know, <laughs> and, which I never had, thank God. Yeah. I just don't think you learn by rote. No, I mean some people you are learn gifted. associatively, not mm. by rote. Exactly. You, I think it when you can. Well, that's what I think was very interesting. As you said, you you've applied what you've learned in math. You 
through your visual arts, it helped you give new dimension to it. And I mm -hmm. think that's a wonderful way to teach people. Mm -hmm. So people who are naturally visual say, hey, look how that corresponds to math. Look, it's a, it's a wonderful visual game. We're all the time making calculations. We're a body is formed with calculations. Also, you know, high, uh, people who deal, uh, deal with higher mathematics are sexy. Mathematicians are sexy. <laughs> sexy lot. And oh, okay. That's another way to sell it. <laughs> no, but it's an important way. You have to sell you know, is, is that children are not allowed their sexuality, and you know, sex is discouraged. Wait a minute. And controlled. You know, children Wait. are not allowed sexuality, and I think that's probably changing because of computers and cell phones. Okay. All right. I didn't. I hadn't heard that. I mean, I think to you, mathematicians are sexy, and I think to anyone who's no, no, they are, believe me. I've been around that world all my life. <laughs> I they don't think are, it's the conception. They are. They are Generally. sexy as hell. Ben, <laughs> Higher you, you have some crush on some mathematicians. I, I'm trying to think. I, I'm. I'm trying to contextualize it. I wonder what you mean by that, and is it the the? I mean visceral, responsive. And one of the things about my work, it's, it's visceral and it's sexy, my work. Right. Maybe it's the way not cold musicians are sexy. Because that's math. <laughs> there's a, I think that there's a, from what I'm hearing from you, is there's a creativity to math. And that's sexy. Well, they're sexy. That is, they're not thinking up here. They're thinking with their whole bodies. They're feeling numbers. They're feeling thought. You know, it's not, you know, <laughs> this stuff. I think that's a misconception about mathematics. It sure as hell is. Do you stick with a piece until it's finished? Or do you ever scrap a work and start over? I'm thinking about math, and I'm thinking yeah. about mathematicians and how they might reach the end of a sequence before they, they had predicted. That's not how math works. At all? No? No, because, you know, you, 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 know, you do an equation that isn't really working, so you turn it upside down, you know, and you, <laughs> or backwards, and you go at it, you know, from a different angle, and, and you know, things, it's, it's organic, it grows. So in that way, it does, it, does that translate to your art, do you think, and to art, turning it upside down? Sure. Yeah. That's the way artists work. Absolutely. Do you get frustrated in your creative process ever? Probably, but I'm not so aware of it. I mean, because solving an equation is both exciting and grueling. I mean, a complex equation. And so doing an artwork is that way, like there's this last blue collage that I'm working on. I've been working on it for a while and I thought I lost it. And I realized, oh, I didn't lose it. There's some things I can do here. There's a way to retrieve it. And it's kind of important to me because it's called spillover. And it just encompasses a, a lot of different you know, aspects of this work and it, it's probably a kind of a, on the cusp of one kind of growth indicating another kind of growth. 
You, you said a long time. What is a long time you've been working on it, Seth? November. Oh, okay. That is a long time. It's not very big. Yeah. You said you're rigorous. There's a rigor there. How many hours do you put in to studio yeah, work? You know, you don't I, don't, I don't really think of my life that way. I think, you know, it's all one piece. You know, I don't consider going to Coney Island you know, different than working in a way because I'm looking, I'm experiencing, I'm taking photographs. Um, you know, I'm existing just on a different plane than I exist in my work. But you know, and uh, you know, I can't, I could can no longer work 15 straight hours, which I've done most of my life. Uh, but uh, you know, I think I, I, I want to. You know, Rauschenberg made that famous statement about the gap between life and art. I don't experience a gap. I just, like, it's, it's all the same thing. And I think maybe, perhaps it's because I've cut off anything that presented a gap. I don't know, I mean, you know, I, I realize at this point how how happy my life is because I don't have intolerable situations. I've cut them out, or let them go, or let them grow, or you know, all that stuff. When did you learn to trust yourself? I think I was born that way. I don't think it. I don't think there was an aha moment because I remember when I was very young really a child, just feeling like I knew better than that, you know, that what somebody was telling me, I, was like, I don't think so, <laughs> you know, I, and I remember that really when I was very young, you know, my family told this story that when I was about four, uh, I announced to the family that they had to call me by my, my family and friends, uh, by my full name, Dorothea, that I wasn't going to answer to it for. Was a good answer to any. Was a good answer to Dorothy or Dottie or Thea or anything else. I wasn't going to answer to any nickname, and I didn't. I was pretty self-composed. <laughs> Where does that come from? I think you're born with it, you know. <laughs> I do too, because yeah. I think that a lot of artists might look at other artists' work, and what I'm hearing from you, there's not an envy of other people's no. work. No, so a lot of admiration. Yeah, for others and love, solely admiration. Love yeah. the work of Bob Ryman. I think it's just he was an extraordinary artist, and I love the work of uh, Bryce Martin. Beautiful, and other many other artists. I just, you know, I'm so happy to be alive when they're alive and working because seeing a Bryce Martin show, I think a Ryman show. When you go to Dia, you'll see his work there just such an original thinker. And the thing is that, you know, like with mathematics, it's with Bryce, every work is an autobiography. And that's how mathematicians are. Every equation is an autobiography. I would never have thought it that way. I know, people don't because they've been poisoned, but I wasn't. I was just, had the world open to me. And that is sexy. Very sexy. 
Exactly. <laughs> it's, I, I would like to know more, to be able to read the biography into each equation. I don't know that I, don't know that I will have that sense. I can, but well, I think... it's a bit of a stretch yeah. to think that way, I have to say. But, you know, when you're doing an equation, you have to think that somebody else has done the answer to it. You, know, yeah. you have to think, well, why, why did he or she do that? You think of the choices he made, Ryman, just, you know, working with white paint on a piece of cardboard from a box, you know, and just not even covering the whole thing, <laughs> putting it up, you know, with, with cleats. I mean, you know, this is like visceral stuff. But how, may I say then, do you not consider your own work autobiographical in the same way? Because you're identifying theirs as. No, I think of it as autobiographical, but not as distinctively autobiographical as Bryce's. Bryce's right. work is very autobiographical. Right. And I, th I think he's one of the great artists of the 21st century, I really do. No, no, it is definitely very powerful oh. and physical. And <coughs> but I guess maybe you're saying theirs is autobiographical and yours is perhaps autobiographical, but you're listening as much. I'm listening to the universe. Yes, as much I'm as I'm not just listening story. to myself. Yeah. You know, or, or living my work in that way. I'm. Because I have this mathematical talent, I'm trying to figure out the universe. Mm. Small goal. <laughs> I hear myself talking. Are you kidding? <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Dorothy Rockburn, thank you for your beautiful art, which has helped us um, unlock the mysteries of maths and reveal its secret sexiness, the nature of, na uh, the nature of nature, your collaborations, and dance. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Okay. <laughs> this interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities, students, and Benjamin Apple. Associate interviews producer on this podcast was Lainey Sperry from Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Winter Time was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition traveling to leading universities or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.